0: We also welcome our new celebrity guest scorer, the host of the Best Picture cast,
1: Kieran B. Welcome to the show. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. Honored to be here. Big fan of the show and uh, super excited to be part of the pod here today.
0: How are you tonight?
1: Doing well. Spring's here. Baseball season's getting started, so I'm uh, in a good mood. And uh, it's lighter days and weather's getting a little warmer here in New York, so uh, feeling good.
0: So I have to imagine you're already pandering to my father with the baseball.
1: <laughs> I Guess so. These are baseball guys in good company.
0: Are, are you a Yankee fan?
1: I'm an Atlanta Brave fan. Believe it or oh. not, born and raised in New York.
2: Okay. All right.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
0: Not a Mets fan because that would have been uh, even worse. But uh, okay. no,
1: I'm from a, a family of Mets fans, but I'm uh, I'm the lone Brave fan out of market.
0: Well, at least you got a championship recently, so can't be all that bad.
1: Sure do. Sure do. Got my uh, championship banner right here behind me.
0: Sounds good. So with all new guests to the
1: show, as you're well
0: aware, we like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So just first, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies.
1: Sure. So uh, I'm uh, the host of uh, Best Picture Cast, as you said before, we're a podcast that... Covers all the best picture winners, in no real order, but we give them a full deep dive, a full uh, sit-down, long discussion on each one. We we talk them in long form. Uh, we it's usually like four, three or four of us, and we sit down, uh, have a beverage, and just talk all things that have to do with the movie. So whether it's uh, one of the great ones like The Godfather or one of the not so great ones like Cimarron, uh, we we give it them all their their due day. Yeah, so it's it's a fun thing that we've been doing with some friends and met people along the way like yourselves and it's uh, always, always a good time.
0: So I have a question and this is off subject and completely out of our normal order, but the 1928 Oscars, the original ones, do you count that there are two best picture winners or not?
1: So that first Oscars, we haven't dabbled with it just yet, but, uh, you know, do we give do we give sunrise its due day and, and talk that one too, because I do like that film a lot. Uh, as of right now the plan is just to cover wings but maybe we'll do a uh, we'll give a little love to to sunrise too it should should get in its own episode also
0: personally given that we have 5 years to go before the 100th oscars and there's going to be a big hoopla around that one i'm sure i would love for them to reintroduce the notion of best artistic picture and best i guess production picture so essentially a best popular oscar and best art house film.
1: Not a not a bad idea. It would be good to give uh, an extra an extra film its due day and get a little extra love out there. So it's it's not a terrible day and there is precedent for doing it before in that first oscar. So uh, I guess we'll see if they they take your advice out there, you know.
0: <laughs> oh, they most definitely won't because, you know, they don't want to actually do things correctly, <laughs> but that's beside the point. So the second question. Oh, I see your derision there, Pop. Yeah, okay. So what is your favorite movie and why?
1: My favorite movie, number one with the bullet, a previous episode on the show, will be Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, without a doubt, my favorite. You know, movie I can always go to, I can always rewatch. Probably a movie that got me the most excited about about watching and getting to know film. And I just think it's, for me, it's a movie that, You can watch surface level and just enjoy the plot and the characters, or you can dig deeper into the the allegory of it all and and all the deeper themes and depending on your mood. So to me, Shawshank is is number one with an easy, easy bullet there.
0: Great. And final question, what makes a good movie for you?
1: So a great movie for me is uh, I I love a good character study. I love uh, a movie that involves people dealing with people. And everything that's that not just they're dealing with in their conversations, but what what's going on under the surface, too. And I like big, grandiose images of the world and and all the beautiful places in the world. So if you could mix the two, to me, you got uh, you have a a great film. So perfect example for me of the name of the podcast, what I consider one of the greatest films of all time would be Lawrence for Arabia. And I think that matches both of those really well.
0: That's another good choice, and one we haven't covered quite yet, but definitely one I'm looking forward to whenever we get there.
2: Yes, the question I'm going to have on that one is is how uh, Peter O'Toole was
0: able to film it being constantly drunk. <laughs> 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 well, to be fair, wasn't most of Hollywood drunk for pretty much the entire 30s, 40s, and 50s? Well, the British contingency,
2: other than uh, Sir Michael Caine, uh, were renowned for their uh alcohol usage, but I just got done watching an old episode of The Tonight Show, and Peter O'Toole came out, and he's boiled.
0: <laughs> so, people after your own heart. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. Well, let's dig into tonight's selection. So, tonight for our one hundred and fifty-sixth episode, we discussed the Tennessee Williams adaptation Cat on a Hot Tin Roof from 1958, written and directed by Richard Brooks, co-written by James Poe, starring Elizabeth Taylor as Margaret Maggie the Cat Pollitt, Paul Newman as Brick Pollitt, Burl Ives as Harvey Big Daddy Pollitt, Jack Carson as Cooper Gooper Pollitt, Judith Anderson as Ida Big Mama Pollitt. Madeline Sherwood as Mae Flynn's sister woman, Pollitt, and also the most annoying character, Larry Gates as Dr. Baugh, and Vaughn Taylor as Deacon Davis. Recognition for this movie, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, was released on August 27, 1958. It would go on to gross roughly $17.6 million against a budget of $2.3 million, becoming the third highest grossing film of 1958. Tennessee Williams was reportedly unhappy with the screenplay, which removed almost all of the homosexual themes and revised the third act section to include a lengthy scene of reconciliation between Brick and Big Daddy. Paul Newman, the film's star, had also stated his disappointment with the adaptation, the Hays Code limited Brick's portrayal of sexual desire from Skipper, and diminished the original play's critique of homophobia and sexism. Williams so disliked the toned-down film adaptation of his play that he told people waiting in line to go see the film, this movie will set back the industry 50 years. Go home. However, the film was highly acclaimed by critics and would go on to be nominated for Best Picture, Director for Richard Brooks, Actor for Paul Newman, Actress for Elizabeth Taylor, Adapted Screenplay, and Color Cinematography. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof currently holds a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics an 84 score on Metacritic, and a 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So let's start here. Dad, you're more of the historian of the podcast and have a little bit more background than I do on some theater elements. What do you know about Tennessee Williams and his plays?
2: He wrote a lot about his personal experiences of being a gay man in that time frame. He also had an estranged relationship with his father and with his parents in general, and there was a lot of sexual tension. So most of his plays involved abusive sexual behavior, homosexuality, estranged relationships. That's what he came from, and that's
0: what he decided to portray and put into his plays. I should mention that the original play behind this also won the Pulitzer Prize in, I believe, 1955, but I think most people would know him more from something like Streetcar Named Desire than they would necessarily for this play. So then that begs the question, would the movie have carried more weight if Brick is more notably gay like he is in the play? Well, it's
2: questionable even in the play of, of Brick's orientation Skipper is clearly in love with Brick and in the play itself the difference between the play and the movie was is that uh Maggie confronts Skipper and accuses him of being in love with Brick and then he kind of forcefully tries to have sex with her but is unable to uh consummate it
0: rise to the occasion
2: yes and so he then starts crying and and carrying on and then calls Brick and admits that he's in love with him, and Brick turns him down, and that's why he commits suicide.
0: That makes a lot more sense than what's depicted in the movie, but I always thought that sequence was a little missing of something. There, there was just a lack of substance that really explained it. How did you take it, Karen?
1: Yeah, I, I would definitely agree that that section of the movie gets confusing for me. Even on my second watch, I, I was trying to put the pieces together because, I mean, at, at this point I had at least done enough research to know what was missing and what the Hayes codes weren't allowing the director to do. And I kind of put this as a little bit on the director because I think that some of the some of our, our higher class directors, like a Billy Wilder or an Alfred Hitchcock, knew the parameters they had to work with and knew what they could and couldn't do and used those limitations artistically. If you look at uh, something like, for instance, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, where you have two characters who are behind the scenes supposed to be in a homosexual relationship with each other, and he can't overtly say that in the script or on screen, there's just a little moment where they touch hands and move on from there. So there's it is commented on visually, and the people um, who are watching with the finer comb can can put that together, um, or you can go with where, what you need to go with from there. So not that that's perfect either, and, and that in its sense hasn't aged the best. But nothing in, under those restrictions are going to age the best because The Hays Code really wouldn't let you do a lot of things that we see in film today. Uh, but I, I do kind of put that a little bit on the limitation of the director. I'd like to see a little more of a creative way around what they were handcuffed with there
0: yeah like I mentioned I just think there's a little bit missing from that plot line it just doesn't hold the emotional gravitas like when I watched the movie and I really tried my best not to look at any material ahead of time to like know what the movie was about or to really try and see you know any of the background necessarily so that I could just let the movie kind of wash over me I had to question whether or not it it seemed like Skipper was gay, quite clearly, but that there was some element of that that just didn't make sense. There was some part of the equation that was just missing. If given the emotional resonance of the original play, which was audacious in its moment, it would have made a much bigger impact at the time, even if the box office would have significantly dropped off as a result of it.
2: If they would have done done the movie like the play, it wouldn't have even played in most movie houses. Middle
0: American South would not have even shown it. I'm not even sure it would have played anywhere outside of New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. Probably.
1: Yeah, which is why I think, you know, you need a, a skillful director to handle material like that. If you're going to work within the Hayes Codes and you're going to work in, in an area where you're limited in how you can tell the story the direction really has to be top-notch to execute there. And that's where I thought that the one area of this movie was probably lacking the most.
0: Well, I find it interesting that the director of the Broadway stage play was the same guy that directed multiple Tennessee Williams stage plays and had done the first two Tennessee Williams adaptations to the screen in Ilya Kazan, but he strategically sat this one out partially due to his decaying relationships with Williams and Williams' rather demanding demeanor. But <laughs> I think he would have been the type of guy, given his background and all of the controversy surrounding him during the 50s, to be somebody who probably could have coaxed some of this out without necessarily being overt.
1: Yeah, agreed. And and I think you'd see a different picture if you had Elia Kazan in here, uh, or if you had a just really a, a higher-class director. Um, but this kind of just was a little bit of like a like a store brand, Elia Kazan. That's kind of felt like it throw that with stock score footage, which I thought was the toughest part of this whole film. It was almost distractingly bad to me. There's 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 elements of this that I'm sure in a category later we'll we'll be able to tackle. So this is my first time watching the film. Do you have a prior relationship with it? Yes, I watched this about a year ago uh, when we covered the best picture winner of this year, Gigi. Uh, another movie that I don't know would score great on your rubric. Uh, so I, I like to pick one of the other nominees, and I'm a huge Paul Newman fan, huge Elizabeth Taylor fan. So with the two of them on screen together, it was an easy choice for me to pick this one. And I did enjoy it, you know, as a, as a viewer. And I, I think it gets a little better the more you watch it because you can kind of figure out what's going on and kind of lean into the the dialogue and and the letter of the word a little more because it's very wordy the first time you see it. But this is, uh, within the last year or so, I'm new to this in in that sense. It was not like a book we read in high school or anything like that.
2: You mentioned Gigi. I thought about downloading it and keeping it on my tablet near my bed because I'm an insomniac. I can put that on and I'll be right back asleep within a few minutes.
0: (laughs) The only trouble of putting that on any personal device is, isn't there a song in there that is uh, Maurice Chevalier singing about little girls? Uh, Yes, you'd be referring to...
1: Thank heaven for little girls. I, I can't imagine that one going very classic. Yeah, the authorities may may uh, be checking in on you. At least throw a flag up or two. Yeah, Gigi is 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 complicated. I'll put it that. Uh, it's not. It's not as. I don't think it's as bad as some people beat it over the head with. But it is definitely a complicated best picture winner.
0: Well, of the Oscar best picture winners that were musicals to win best picture, I mean, it's got to be in the bottom three.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure that that's going to probably be the popular opinion. I mean, I, I know you. I think you guys did my Fair Lady, right? Yes. Uh, I'm not a big My Fair Lady guy personally. Uh, I guess the Great Zigfield doesn't technically count as a musical. It's more no. of like a, a show. But that's a bad one though. But yeah, yeah, I, I get you with I get you with Gigi on it.
0: Well, I'm trying to think. Chicago is the only modern one. We almost had one with Cabaret, but The Godfather actually won over Cabaret. And so we're really limited to like West Side Story, My Fair Lady, Sound of Music, Oliver, Gigi, and American in Paris. I think that might be just about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Going My Way is counted by some. I don't really consider it a musical, but I guess it's more the songs are more kind of relevant to what's going on in the in the world of the movie. But I think you, you hit them all.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. And for lack of a better term, for about 30 seconds to three minutes, we had another Best Picture winner that was a musical for La La Land.
1: (laughs) Very true. Very true. Uh, Yeah.
0: I'm still disappointed about that one, but oh well. Anyway, so what do you guys think this movie is about?
2: It's a story of fathers and sons and the fact that fathers and sons have tend to have very complicated relationships. I know I had a complicated relationship with my father. I think my relationship with my father, because of inner, or divine intervention, the fact that my mother passed 10 years before my dad, and I ended up basically having to take care of him in his last days, changed our relationship. But then again, he had a relationship with his dad, which, whew, um. Is like the story of of uh, it was almost Dickensian in nature, and um, so your father was an orphan. Virtually, when you live in fifty three different places before you're seventeen, and with multiple different relatives, you could almost say you were an orphan. I think that's a large part of it. The other is, is just the complex relationships that exist. And how we tend to bury parts of ourselves in order to function and survive in society and to try to portray ourselves in a way that is acceptable to the general masses instead of expressing who we really are.
0: I thought for sure, and it's gonna have to do with my aboutism, but you would have brought up your favorite vocabulary word from the movie. Yes. Mondacity. To me, this movie is a lot about family, but it also is how many different Hallmark movies or Christmas movies are a family gets together and they finally tell the truth about all the things that they've been trying to paper over for years. It's all the lies that we tell with it. Families.
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot of, uh, of self-identity in this, too. And you, you mentioned the daddy. There's definitely daddy issues. Should we say big daddy issues? I would say. But um, yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of, of, of self-worth in this too, and what you, what you build and what you earn and what, and what you're worth based on it. I mean, we talk about Big Daddy kind of growing up, uh, his father having nothing, and him, I built and worked for everything I have, and now he's at the end of his life, and what is it worth? Because he didn't have the love that he experienced with his father. And then you look at Paul Newman's character, Brick, who built himself up as an athlete, and now is kind of broken and and wondering where he can get back to that and you know i'm i'm a a baseball coach myself, and I've done coaching and scouting and and seen players get to real high levels and you know they dedicate their lives to it, and when it's over, you know it's hard and you know i I coach one guy who's actively in the major leagues on the on the San Diego Padres, but he's one of so many others that had that same dream, some of which were better than him when he was younger. And it's, it, when it's over, you really do have to kind of collect yourself and say, you know, I strive for this throughout the process in order to build my character and build myself, build a work ethic. But then you have to know where to go from there. It can't just be about that climb. And when the climb's over, you have to be able to settle down and, and build your life from there. And, and usually the, the most sound way to do so is with loved ones and with family. And I think that's what both of these characters struggle to do. Do you happen to be a Jets fan? I'm a Giants fan. I'm a big Giants fan.
0: Because I was going to say, you almost need to advise a a one Aaron Charles Rogers on some of (laughs) that. But we digress. A couple Packer fans, I'm guessing. Packer owners, yes. Uh, Awesome.
2: I was just going to comment about the relationship and such. It reminded me in part of um, the Springsteen song Glory Days. And how the first verse is about the, the guy reliving high school when he was the big baseball star. I spent nine years as president of my local school board, and I always gave a little presentation at graduation. And I would tell kids, those that you were unpopular or that didn't feel like they were connected, you can make your own life at this point in time. And for those of you who were popular and big sp- sports stars. Don't let the highlight of your life be high school. And I think that's part of what this is. He couldn't figure out what to do from there on. He, He lacked the ability to know or to take the next step. And you see that a lot of times in professional athletics. The guys who seem to succeed are the ones that aren't the best or the most gifted athletes because they had to work harder for it. They're able to take the steps beyond this this entire movie or an end play says a lot about relationships in general
1: yeah, and look at look at Tom Brady, who's you know probably unquestionably the the greatest quarterback to play the sport, and his career's at the end, and he doesn't know where to go. he doesn't know what to do. he's a little bit he's got a little brick in him himself, too, you know, yeah, he's forced
0: having to look after is it his daughter's cat. <laughs> but i think you're both beating around one particular quote that i thought was meaningful that i had as a nominee and i'll preempt myself a little bit but people like doing what they used to do after they've stopped being able to do it
1: one of my favorites in this one good one
0: so let's dig a little further into the film dad do you have a plot summary ready for us okay now you pronounced it Pollet. i believe Pollet. yeah
2: because i always thought it was polite.
0: I thought, that was, I thought they said pollet during the movie.
2: Well, I just assumed Tennessee Williams would be giving it a, a French flavor, but... All right.
0: Well, but I don't think this is actually in Louisiana, though.
2: No, it's Mississ- supposedly Mississippi, which is where all the good land is. I see. If you go down there, Louisiana was always flooded and difficult to grow. The real good land was across the Mississippi into the state of Mississippi. Okay. After Brick Pollitt, Paul Newman, injures himself, drunkenly revisiting his high school sports star days, he and his estranged wife, Maggie, Elizabeth Taylor, visit his family's Mississippi plantation for the 65th birthday of his hot-tempered father, Big Daddy, for lives. Big Daddy does not know he's dying, but Brick drunkenly discloses the state of Big Daddy's health. Brick's older brother, Gooper, Jack Carson, and his wife, May, Madeline Shorewood, knowing of Big Daddy's demise, seek to control Big Daddy's estate. As the family wrangles over Big Daddy's money, Brick and Big Daddy struggle to come to terms with their relationship.
0: I'm really uncomfortable with the amount of times we're going to have to say the term (laughs) Big Daddy.
1: (laughs) Big Daddy issues. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you, Dad. Did you know? Elizabeth Taylor proceeded with filming, even though her husband, Mike Todd, was killed in a plane crash on the same day shooting began. Did you know? Tennessee Williams wrote the role of Big Daddy Pollitt with Burl Ives in mind. Prior to the original stage production, Ives was known primarily as a folk singer, and many within the theater community questioned Williams' decision. Ives won rave reviews in the role on stage and screen and went on to a long and prestigious acting career. A note that I did not have in the Did You Know section, but he actually won for a different film Best Supporting Actor this same year. Did you know? This movie was originally to be filmed in black and white, as was the standard practice with artistic movies in the 1950s. Virtually all movie adaptations of plays of Tennessee Williams had been in black and white up to that time. However, once Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor were cast in the leads, writer and director Richard Brooks insisted on shooting in color, in deference to the public's well-known enthusiasm for Taylor's Violet and Newman's strikingly blue eyes. Did you know? Due to a musician's union strike, the movie lacks a traditional musical score composed specifically for this movie. Instead, a canned score compromised of pre-recorded pieces from the MGM Music Library is used. Most of this music, including the evocative main theme, was originally composed by Andre Previn for MGM's Tension in 1949. Did You Know? Elvis Presley, Robert Mitchum, and Montgomery Clift all turned down the role of Brick Pollitt. James Dean was considered to play Brick, but died before production began. Did You Know? The original play contained an utterance of bullshit by Big Daddy in what was then an audience-shocking use of profanity on stage. Due to the motion picture production code enforcement at the time the film was produced, it was out of the question to include the line in the screenplay, Adaption. And with that, we will take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing Steve Jobs from 2015, directed by Danny Boyle, written by Aaron Sorkin, starring Michael Fassbender, Kate Winslet, Seth Rogen, and Jeff Daniels. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D.
1: Best performance is up. Kieran, who do you have down? For best performance, there was a world where I had all three principles in this slot, because I really like the three top performances in this one. Uh, I ultimately settled on on Paul Newman. Uh, I think he's has... Uh, the, the least meaty material to start with, and then he builds up into his crescendo toward the end. And I really think he handles the internal moments really well and the stoic moments really well um, while Liz Taylor's bouncing around him doing her thing in that first act. I, I have to go Paul Newman here, who's just a, a national treasure.
2: I have Elizabeth Taylor. I thought she had uh, the yeoman's job in this for a large portion of the movie. And I, I, every time, by the time I grew up, Elizabeth Taylor was more of a punchline because she'd gotten older, overweight, you know, the seven marriages. And it's, it's after I go back and watch her when she was in her prime acting that I realized how really good she was. I think she did a really good job here. Then if you watch Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? And you just go, wow, this woman could act. And um, you don't realize it until you go back and
0: rewatch some of these films. I think you could be easily in one camp or the other as far as who would be the best performance. But I think for the majority, okay, let's put it this way. I'm going to predict that if you did not have one for best performance, you had them in best secondary performance. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, because that's me too. It was really a choice of who do you prefer and who do you think had the better of those two, but it's not like there's that much separation. Going into this, I've been a big fan of every time that we got to do a new Paul Newman movie that I hadn't seen before partially because every time I consume something else, he's just got this great charisma and movie star quality that I don't know if maybe a hundred other people in the history of Hollywood have ever had. He just had it, whatever it was, he had it. And that was one of the confusing things about this movie for me was he was not really a star in the way that he is in The Sting or Cool Hand Luke or any of these other really charismatic performances. Most of his role was much more understated, so color me a little bit disappointed that I didn't get to see that side of Paul Newman, but I can respect the job that he performed. Ultimately, I went with Elizabeth Taylor, too, just because I thought she was given the meatiest part, since we brought that term up before, and had to do... Probably the most, especially for the first two acts, I would say, of the movie, really getting you into it and getting you to care about any of these characters. And so that's just kind of where my mind went that every time I thought she was on screen, she was the biggest person on screen every time. But I don't have a fault going one way or the other. And like I said, I had Paul Newman as my best secondary performance. While it's not his. Leading man persona. I mean, he's playing a drunk, which frankly he did in most movies. And in real life, I guess he had to drink a 24 pack of Budweiser a day. Neither here nor there. If he could still put on performances like this and do that, have at it, Haas. But uh, I don't know. There's a real subtlety to his performance that was necessary. And the pain that he's experiencing, obviously the physical pain from the ankle, although. I don't think that's nearly as bad as uh, is made out basically in the movie. Because I think they said at one point his ankle's broken, but he immediately tries to shrug it off and say he didn't really break anything. And so it just seems like a really bad sprain, if anything. But that being said, most of the pain was under the surface. In that moment where he's in the bathroom and they're arguing through the door and he buries his face in her nightgown, I thought was one of the great like unsaid moments of the movie. And so I think, arguably, you could go Burl Ives here too, but I went with Paul Newman as my best secondary.
1: My best secondary is uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Love, love, love Elizabeth Taylor. She would be my old school Hollywood crush. Um, I mean, she's just, uh, she's fantastic. Everything you, you said, Dana, about her is just spot on. I don't know if you guys have seen A Place in the Sun another one of my favorites, George Stevens direct, and she just crushes in that. Uh, It's great to see her in color here. And um, really as, as, as Newman has that introverted performance where he's worn from the inside out until he gradually, gradually has to come out and explode. She's got that extroverted performance right out of the gate where she's just trying to get anything she can out of this guy. And she loves him so much. And, and wears her heart on the sleeve? And it, it's easy to say that that's a money in the bank kind of role, but it's hard to actually pull off when you, you have those types of, of expectations, particularly considering it's the Tennessee Williams property and all that. So I, I totally think she nails it in this. And, and my heart goes out for character. And she's just a, an awesome piece of this movie. Her and Newman make this a, a, a movie worth watching.
0: I don't know if she's looked much better in a film other than maybe giant to me.
2: Well, I'd like to just interject by Paul Newman's story just to kind of add in what he's like. I have a friend who uh, is, it was a traveling software salesman, and he's in a middle-sized town in Ohio, and it's late. And he goes into the bar to get a beer. He just gets to the town. He just wants a beer to relax before he heads to bed. He sits down at the bar, and he looks over, And he can't believe what he's seeing. And so he walks over and he says, can I buy you a beer? And Paul Newman looks up and says, you don't have to buy me a beer. He says, but if you want to sit and talk to me, you can. And so he sits down and he goes, but the one ground rule is we can only talk about fishing. (laughs) And so they talked about fishing for about uh, half an hour, 40 minutes. The one question he allowed him to ask is why he was there and he said that he was there because of like a high school reunion. And that was the extent of it. He wouldn't talk about anything else, just fishing.
1: Very cool. Very cool. So that's
0: your best secondary pop. Yes. Most charismatic for me again, because she just was the biggest person on screen at any one time. I'm going to go with Elizabeth Taylor here too.
1: For me, I went with Burl Ives here. Uh, I thought he was, uh, he was just electric on screen in this. He made me laugh the most out of anyone in the movie. He had a real uh, way with the the uh, the twang of it all, and I thought he was just it was it was explosive. Put a smile on my face from beginning to end, and really uh, really chewed it up in the right kind of ways there at the end with some of the meteor stuff. Both the, uh, the well, basically all three main confrontations with with Brick and Paul Newman inside uh, side and then down in the basement.
2: For me, I originally thought about Elizabeth Taylor and then I stopped to think about it. I'm going to go with Tennessee Williams. I know he doesn't like this adaptation, but when you use his name in any context, there's an immediate visceral reaction people have. They know who he is. They know what kind of things he does. He's one of the few playwrights of the modern era that people recognize him, his name immediately and know what his works are. To me, that's the definition of charisma.
0: I think that's more notoriety than charisma, but point taken. Uh, okay. I, I Maybe let's move to best scene. I only had a few of them because a lot of the scenes are fairly long, given that it's a stage play. And so they're not moving sets very often. But I have Maggie the Cat, which is really just kind of that opening sparse between Newman and Elizabeth Taylor that kind of gets us into the movie and gives us a lot of the exposition for everything that's going on. Then I had Brick and Big Daddy have it out. And I know I'm skipping over a bunch of that stuff, but like the plane arriving and all the pomp and circumstance with me and the kids, just I'm okay without a lot of that. I know it has to add to the play, but still best scene it is not but yeah Brick and Big Daddy have it out uh, which is Bur lives comes up to I guess the room or whatever and kind of talks about how disappointing Brick is to him and his alcoholism. So then I have Skipper's death so the kind of the reveal and the emotional catharsis of that scene. I have Gooper and May make their play and that's when they get into it with Elizabeth Taylor and Big Mama. And try and figure out basically what's going to happen after Big Daddy dies. And then the reconciliation in the basement at the end. Are there any out of there that you think I missed?
2: The final scene, which is Big Daddy coming up, helping pick up the papers and figuring out what Cooper is doing. Okay. Because to me, that's that's both my favorite scene and the most indelible. The mendacity scene? Yes. I used to use that, discuss that scene with clients all the time when I'd prepare them for their hearing. And uh, social security disability hearings, I'd tell the clients, if you've ever seen that movie in the last scene, you, you smell, you have that smell of mendacity, you know, it's a sniff test. And I'd tell the clients that most of the time the judges just want to look at you and figure out whether you're believable or you're just a big liar.
0: Did you have anything that I missed, Karen? Uh,
1: no, I think you I think you lined him out pretty good. All right. So, what do you think is the best scene? For me, for me, the best scene is when uh, it, during the confrontation between Big Daddy and and Brick when they're out by the car in the rain and it's really coming to a head and he's talking to him about uh, heroes live twenty four hours, not just two hours in a in a football game, that stuff. And it's, it's kind of the peak of, of their conflict for me, uh, before they reconcile in the basement later. And before they really are, are jabbing at each other earlier, I think it really comes to a head when they get outside the house in the rain in that garage by the car. And, uh, to me, that's, that's the, the peak of the movie for me.
0: I think I'd have to go with a particular moment in the reconciliation scene. And that's when they're discussing his father, or not uh, Brick's father, but Big Daddy's father, and the suitcase he left him with the Spanish-American war uniform, and talking about he left you with memories and love. I thought that was a really moving scene or a really moving moment within the screenplay. So for me, that would probably be the best thing or the thing that sticks out to me most. But outside of that, I, I think my most indelible is them in the rain as well. Just that final confrontation where he lets it slip, and then... They're just both standing there, knowing the consequences of everything that's been going on, all the lies that have been told to them to that point.
1: So that's a good trade off because my most indelible is your best scene there in the basement. Uh, Big Daddy talking about his daddy in the, uh, by the, by the, bearing him by the train tracks. And, uh, and he left you with love, not just the suitcase with the, with the veteran uniform in there. So, yeah, that was my most indelible.
2: Dad, what did you think was the best scene? The basement scene when Big Daddy and Brick start to come to terms with each other. And what I thought was most poignant about the scene where he acknowledges his own father, he didn't want to be like his father, but he also understood, I think, for the first time, he came to terms with the fact that his father did give him something, did provide him with something. I mean, Big Daddy spent his entire life striving to achieve and to make something because he didn't want to come from nothing. And he had to take a step back and think about the fact that his perception of, you know, he's basically written his father off because it helped drive him forward to accomplish his goals. And then when he stops and thinks about it, it wasn't quite what he kept telling himself. It's kind of his own level of mundacity. In order to uh, to achieve a higher level of success, that's why I thought that was the best scene because there were so many layers that you could look at in that particular thing between Brick and Big Daddy, Big Daddy and his own father, understanding the relationship, coming to terms with it. And I, I mean, I remember the time when I finally came to terms with the fact that you know my relationship with my dad. You know, my dad's dad was a piece of garbage, as far as I'm concerned, and abandoned him and his kids and et cetera. And, uh, but my dad didn't have a lot of example, and he did the best he could based on the model he had. And now looking back, I've come to that term. And so that was really, that point really spoke to me, because I think at some point in time, every man needs to evaluate their own f- relationship with their father and how it will eventually impact if they ever have children.
0: Agreed wholeheartedly. And I think, again, that's
1: probably why it's also my favorite scene. Karen, what's your favorite scene? I think that my favorite scene is going to be that scene in the garage in the rain, you know, him, him hashing out his, you know, him, him talking him about, Hey, you can't just be a football player. You gotta be, you have to live life too. You know, and you can't get stuck in that two hours. You have to live the 24. Uh, I, I think that that just spoke to me a little bit as, you know, as as someone who's tried to guide young athletes and try to get them in the right track and how hard it is to, to to get them to to fully realize that, yes, it is OK to put everything you have into something now, but you have to know how to move on when when the time is right, because that last game comes for everyone who's ever suited up whether that last game is when you're uh, a 38-year-old Hall of Famer retiring or when you're playing your last Little League game. Everyone has their last game, so you have to be ready for it and you have to be ready to move on to, to, to what's next in life.
0: That looks like a good place to stop, so we will take our second break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, If you're ever curious about our master greatest movies of all time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com slash GMotePodcast and find it as the top entry on the greatest movie of all time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 147 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes.
2: Gloria D. was 100 years old. American actress was in King of the Congo and one of my all-time favorites, Planet Nine from Outer Space. She was also the first magician
0: to perform on the Las Vegas Strip. Not even just first female, but first magician overall, as far as I saw in the obituary. So that's impressive.
2: Lance Reddick, uh, 60, American actor, The Wire, Fringe, and uh, John Wick.
0: Also a very talented musician, but yeah, this was a rather sudden one. He's been doing the promo work for John Wick 4. He was set to be in the spin-off Ballerina coming up here that was kind of the I guess, background of where John Wick actually came from that they get to in the third movie. And so it's a rather sudden death for somebody that we just discussed here on the show a couple of weeks ago when we did the John Wick episode. Somebody that has been kind of one of those great character actors in the background of things, but you really notice him when he's on screen. A terrible loss as far as that's concerned. And I know with John Wick 4 coming out, he gets a certain level of extra crescendo to his passing but still somebody that really could have done a lot more good work and it's very unfortunate because as it
1: turns out apparently he died of natural causes that we still don't know what the wire my favorite show ever played lieutenant daniels on the wire just a, a, a wonderful character with great integrity and he portrayed him so well uh, also had a small bit part on Lost too, another a favorite show of mine so um r.i.p for sure And so we remember these here for their contribution to magic,
0: movies, music, and the arts with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. All right, let's go to best funniest lines. Harvey Big Daddy Pollitt, I've got the guts to die. What I want to know is, have you got the guts to live? Big Daddy,
2: what's that smell in this room? Didn't you notice it, Brick? Didn't you notice a powerful and obnoxious odor of mendacity in this room? There ain't nothing more powerful than the odor of mendacity.
1: You can smell it. It smells like death. Maggie, let's face facts, baby. You're a drinker, and that takes money. Brick, what is the victory of a cat on a hot tin
0: roof? Maggie, just staying on it, I guess, long as she can.
2: Dr. Bow, sometimes I wish I had a pill to make people disappear. Oh, do I love that line. I <laughs> wish I did.
1: <laughs> What's Uncle Brick doing on the floor? I tried to kill your Aunt Maggie, but I failed. And I fell. Careful, Maggie, your claws are showing.
2: Gooper, I don't give a damn whether Big Daddy likes me or don't like me or... He did, or never did, or will,
1: or will never. Brick, it's like a switch clicking off in my head. It turns the hot light off and the cool one on. All of a sudden, there's peace. Big Daddy, boy, you're a real alcoholic. Brick,
0: a family crisis brings out the best and the worst in every member of the family. Big Daddy, but there's one thing you can't buy in a Europe
2: fire sale. Or any other market on earth. And that's your life. You can't buy back your life when it's
1: finished. Big Daddy, you're trying to concentrate but you can't because your brain is soaked with liquor. Wet brain!
0: My final one, Brick. People like doing what they used to do. After they've stopped being able to do it. Big Daddy, Mondacity.
2: What do you know about Mondacity? I could write a book on it, Mondacity. Look at all the lies that I got to put up with. Pretenses, hypocrisy, pretending like I care for Big Mama. I haven't been able to stand that woman in 40 years. Church, it bores me. But I go, and all those swindling lodges and social clubs and money-grabbing auxiliaries. its it, It's got me a number on the number one sucker list. Boy, I've lived with mondacity. Now, why can't you live with it? You gotta live with it. There ain't nothing to live without but mundacity,
1: is there. Brick, how does one drowning man help another drowning man?
0: I'm out. If you guys got any left, go ahead.
2: Brick,
1: Big Daddy,
2: what is it that makes him so big? His big heart,
1: his big belly, or his big money? I got one last one for Big Daddy. Looks like the wind took some liberties with this place.
0: You got any left, Dad? Nope, I'm done. All right. Well, if you gentlemen are ready, we'll move to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. Dad, do you want to go first or second here?
2: Uh, Go ahead.
0: So this is a complicated one because you have the movie and then you have the play. And I think those are two different things. I think the movie lives on a little bit longer than, or excuse me, I think the play lives on a little bit longer than the movie has because the play has been redone and it's a Tennessee Williams play. And I think it's the more notable of the two because it can go with all of the things that were kind of taken out of the movie. I think this one or the movie itself, if anything is known for its three lead performances and that it had two of the leading movie stars of their time in it at the same time. Cause I don't think there's another Elizabeth Taylor, Paul Newman movie. I'll take by your silence that you're
1: agreeing with me. Or I think they both were in like the Green Hornet or something like that, but I don't know if they were on screen at the same time. I think it was just the same world or whatever, but yeah, I don't.
2: Yeah. Hitchcock did one movie that Paul Newman was in, in the sixties. And I'm trying to remember who the the female was in the film.
0: I think from an industry standpoint, you have to give it a little bit of notoriety for having these two in the same movie together. I think this is also a movie that could very easily be shown relatively often on like a TCM. But is it like one of the best movies of Newman's career? I don't even think you put it in the top five. I don't think it's in the top five of Elizabeth Taylor movies. I'd probably put Giants, A Place in the Sun. I'd probably put Cleopatra ahead of this. Uh, I definitely put Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf ahead of this.
2: You might actually put
0: National Velvet ahead of this. Boy, that... Well, that's another discussion for another day. But I also think that the public, just generally, they know of the play by name, but like myself, and I'm a big movie guy, obviously, I knew nothing about this movie other than who was in it and about the time and place that it was uh, made and shown. Other than that... If I didn't know that much about it, how is the average person going to know about it? So I think I went for a two and a two for industry and audience for a four overall. I might be a little bit low, but I I think that's about right. I I think you're a little
2: bit low, but not much. This was remade as a movie in 1984 with Tommy Lee Jones playing Brick. I don't know whether it's the same screenplay or if it was more along the lines of the play itself. And I think the fact of the nominations for the Academy Awards... That only goes
0: into the second category. That's Impact Significance.
2: Eh, well, but I think it's it's held up a little bit. So I went with a three for Legacy. But this is not a film that people think about or talk about. You mention it, and people will think, well, they kind of know what it is, or they may have seen it. And even me, who watches a lot of films and is a film buff historian, I'd only seen parts of it. So, So I had to go with a two for the public. So I'm going with a five overall for Legacy. I think it's to some extent too bad because... I think it should be given a little more recognition by the public than it is.
1: Yeah. So for me, and will just as a little bit of a spoiler alert is this is the category. I was the kindest to this movie in, because I think this is the category where you can click some whistles and, and show where this movie shines. And it's really through the two leads in Elizabeth Taylor and, and Paul Newman. And while maybe people don't look at this as the Elizabeth Taylor performance, I would say that the people who who follow her and who're into her career this is going to be in almost all of their top 5s it's going to be in some's top 3s and I think it'll be you'll even find it in in a 1 or a 2. Uh they're both wonderful on screen. Paul New- a Paul Newman nominated role carries relevance throughout history just because you'll look at that list and see, "All right, he won this late Oscar. What were the other ones he were up for?" And this is a recognizable name on that list. Also, the Tennessee Williams of it all is going to keep it in conversation and in context. It is a movie, and I mean, listen, I cover a lot of movies that are best picture winners, and I'll say the title, and people look at me like I have four heads. This is a movie when I said I was going on a podcast to cover, everyone had heard of it. Had people seen it? Meh, maybe, maybe not. But from uh, the industry standpoint, because of the two industry titans and the, the source material there, uh, I gave it a 3.5, and... um because of uh, it, it kind of staying in the conversation with people throughout the years. Uh, I'm sure the play can take some responsibility for that. I gave it an even score with that too, a 3.5. So a 3.5 for each. And uh, I gave it a seven total.
0: All right.
2: And the answer to this movie I was questioning was Torn Curtain and the female or the woman lead was Julie Anders. <laughs> Who I had forgotten had done a Hitchcock film.
0: I had no idea. I still haven't seen that one. So that's a 5.33 average between the three of us. Impact Significance. This is probably my highest category because this was the third highest grossing film of a year that it did not win Best Picture, but it was also nominated for six Academy Awards, not winning any. It had decently good reviews, if not just. Purely praiseworthy. I mean, there are obviously a few detractors, but there always is somebody that doesn't like something. There's very rarely universal opinion on something. So, given that you're still in the early stages of two starlets' careers, you're adapting a fairly well known playwright's stage play for the screen, and it's the third highest grossing film, plus, it has all these awards. I'm going to go for a four on the industry and a 4.5 for the audience for an 8.5 overall.
2: I went with a 4.5 for the industry because six nominations is significant. I couldn't give any higher since it didn't win any, but sometimes that, in retrospect, is okay because there are a lot of great films that did not win Academy Awards. They've aged well.
0: Shawshank Redemption.
2: yeah. I think the, the uh, performances in here aged very well, and I think the respect of the film and the actors involved was greater within that five-year span. And the fact that it, it did so well at the box office was a 4.5, so I had a 9 overall.
1: Okay, yeah, I was a little harsher on this one here. For the industry, I took some points off because of uh, Tennessee Williams' negative reaction to it you know, going in a line, telling people not to go, kind of disowning it right out of the gates a little bit. That that probably couldn't have sat too well with people there. And, you know, it didn't take home an Oscar in what I consider a really thin year. Uh, you know, a, a thin year. I'll, I'll be fair. I'll call it a thin year, not a really thin year. But it's a, it's a soft director nomination for me. It's a soft cinematography nomination for me. So six isn't insignificant, but it's also for it to not win any is a bit, of a black mark. So I get, I went, I went 2.5 for industry and uh, people went out to see it and it was, uh, it was being talked about. And I think that that probably lent to some of the recognition it it got come Oscar season. So I went 3.5 for the audience. So a, a a total of six.
0: So that's a 7.83 between the three of us or average between the three of us novelty. Dad, let's let you lead off here.
2: I had to stop and think about was there anything that had the same themes? Relationships. Father-son relationship. Internal conflict. Wife um, husband matriarch patriarch tension. The underlying themes of homosexuality that are kind of buried in the screenplay but they're not. You can kind of still see them, they're implied, even if they're not, you know, written in a way that really does imply them. And um, I mean, then you'd have to be pretty dense to not pick up that there's more to the story that's not being said in polite society of the late 1950s. So I went with a nine because the combination was just... And some of the quotes we read, Tennessee Williams, it takes a guy who is a playwright first, then writing, or then they convert those over to film. I mean, that's the beauty of Sorkin and his dialogue is he originally wrote uh, for theater and then took the quotes and the dialogue that he developed for the theater and made it into a screenplay. And when you can find that type of Ability to write that type of dialogue that has impact, that's quotable, that's almost like you could create a meme out of it using today's technology. I mean, I think it says a lot, and I can't think of anything more in combination than that. So I can't give it a perfect 10 because there are some of these themes that have existed in others, but nothing to this extent or in this combination. So that's why I went nine.
1: Yeah, I mean this this conversation talked me up a bit on this number. I, I, I do have to appreciate this for not just being about one thing. You know, it's about a lot of different things and I mean any sort of family dynamic is gonna have that. You know, you have all these different personalities trying to live together and uh trying to love together, and it's it's a complicated situation. And I, I think that the the letter of the word really got a lot of that right and it is quotable and it, it is thematic even the throwaway lines are are kind of fun and it it makes you smile a little bit and makes you laugh you know as far as the medium goes i don't think it did a ton for the medium i think it is kind of like pretty much what a, a tennessee williams adaptation is going to be the one thing it added is is the color of it and you know this is a, a this sort of film would typically be filmed in black and white and the introduction of newman and and elizabeth taylor as as you said before kind of allowed them to put this in color so it gets a little bit of a check mark there, so I think I think, uh, I think uh, I've been talked up to a seven on this one.
2: Just as an aside question: Was this in CinemaScope?
0: It might have been, but I don't remember seeing that advertised on the front end. Usually, it's in the opening credits, and I can't remember seeing that.
2: Well, the reason I ask is is because that's how Mike Todd broke into the industry. He and his uh, partner developed CinemaScope.
1: Mm. Around the world in 80 days, right? Huh?
2: Yeah, so I'm just wondering if the fact that, you know, if Elizabeth Taylor's going to be in it and I'm her husband, you have to film it in CinemaScope, which is widescreen in color.
0: So I think I'm coming up from my original stance. I was actually rather low, and it was partially due to the fact that I thought they took out some of the most audacious parts of the play, and so I kind of held that against the movie. Maybe that's not exactly fair because I do think there are a lot of parts of this movie moving conversations in a related dialogue that is still a somewhat universal. And I also have to give this credit because I don't remember a lot of other family all being together in one situation and, and hashing out their problems type of movies prior to this in 58. So I have to give that credit because As I mentioned before, there are a ton of movies that borrow this kind of trope where everybody's together for a wedding or everybody's together for Christmas or something or other. And they all have this baggage with each other and then they hash it out. And that is your central family drama of a movie. Now.
2: Okay, that's common now. When has it been before that?
0: Before this film? That's what I'm saying. I think this was somewhat inventing of the archetype, if you will. Okay. So I'm a bit conflicted because I still feel a little bit jaded on them taking out what I thought would have been some of the most meaningful parts. This is a movie that because they took out those, and if you'd done a straight play adaptation, I would be a little bit more forgiving. I think I'll match the seven and do that for novelty here.
2: Okay, but again, Tennessee Williams. If you watch the play Streetcar Named Desire versus the film Streetcar Named Desire, it is much more graphic in play, the rape scene of Blanche, But they couldn't film it that way because of the fact that it wouldn't be able to play across the country. There were just so many areas of the country that would not put it in the theaters if they put or if they did a clear adaptation from this the play new york was different than middle america and the south so i don't hold it against it this went as far as it could almost to discuss a, an extremely sensitive issue that was kind of not discussed in polite society the 1950s This went right to the edge and let you know that this existed, but did it in a way that would allow it to be packaged for general
0: audiences. So I can't hold
2: it against it for that.
0: But it wasn't the most audacious film of that year. We already talked about the most audacious film of that year.
1: Thank heaven for little girls.
0: (laughs) That was was a different
2: time frame.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Classicness.
0: Go ahead, Pop.
2: Usually, you know, as we've, we've discussed, it starts with a seven. And I mean, it It discusses a lot of, you know, the sexuality, the tensions, understanding of relationships, coming to terms with success. I, I had a hard time really pinning down if there was anything specific Maybe a little bit too much
1: violence
2: or implied violence between Brick and Maggie. So I had to give it a few points down for for that, but I couldn't give it great points down. I went with an 8.5 because it would be nice if it would have been more overt. Would have been nice if it would have addressed sexuality and orientation more aggressively. But I have to take it within the context of 1958, which I believe I read that there were still 38 states in the United States. It was a felony to be caught involved in uh, same-sex relations. So I can't really fault it for that because of the time frame. It would be nice from a classic what to do it, but I can't. I, I mean, in modern, I'm torn. Let's just put it that way. So I went. Do you an need 8.
0: us to go, and we can circle back to you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I went with an eight point five based on what I thought was appropriate.
0: So go ahead. I'll give you the option of going first or second. There, Karen.
1: I'll, I'll go. I'm pretty harsh with this category, with this movie, and, and I have two very specific reasons. And I, I can't blame the movie for the times, but they knew the times they're in and they knew that the stage that they were playing on and the Hays Code had been in place since the 30s and it would stay in place until the mid the 60s. So great filmmakers like Alfred Hitchcock and Billy Wilder. Uh, had many examples of of how to work around the Hayes codes and tell a a cohesive story and really kind of enrich the themes without overtly telling you what's going on. Just being a suggestive. We talked about rope before you can take one shot between two characters just to let the audience know from the inside what's really going on without coming out and saying it. This movie chose to write around it in a confusing way. And that's very of its time to me. So that, that gets hit in the classic thing, especially when we're talking about two homosexual characters. And when we look at a movie today, I mean, if anything, we're writing in, that into movies more. So uh, it comes off as very of its time in that because they clumsily wrote around it instead of finding a way to have it be a richer, deeper theme. Uh, the other area where it's going to get hit is the score. It absolutely kills me. The score is horrible in this movie. That stock, cheesy piano that plays over the dialogue. And it's because there was a writer strike. And that's, again, branding it of its time. If you don't have the appropriate players to play with, then draw back. And they should have drawn back with the score. And so they inserted it. And it's very, very dated to me in the score. So I gave it a five in Classic for this.
0: I also have my issues with this. I don't know if I have the same issues. But all right, let's just start at the points I would ding it for. There are a lot of things about this that are antiquated to me. One of the major plot lines in this has to do with Brick starting his own professional football team. That's very 1950s. Another major plot line in this is that Elizabeth Taylor is thought less of as a woman because she hasn't pumped out five kids in four years. That's antiquated thinking. The only way that Brick can prove himself as a man is to impregnate his wife. I mean, they're just little things that are supporting of an older mindset that has relatively aged out. There are little things here and there, but really those are the types of things that I I think have become, if anything, the problems with this movie. I'm not going to go too heavy-handed on it because I think this has a portion where this was exploring a topic and some familial relations and relationships that were ahead of its time, but I can only give that so much up because even that's a bit dated for its time. So I think I'm going to land on a six, which is a little bit higher than I thought I would originally go, but I, I forgot to necessarily factor in the, the points up for some of the material it discusses. So, Dad, did you want to revisit your score at all, or are you still okay with your 8.5?
2: Well, your points about children and being virile and all that, I do take into account. I will drop it to a 7.
0: Okay. Well, thank you, because that makes the math very easy on me. It's a 6 average between the three of us. Uh, Rewatchability. Kieran,
1: we'll let you start off. Yeah, so with with rewatchability, I kind of look at two factors. Uh, one is is it the type of movie that I'm gonna want to go and put on, and that's the first section. And the second section is if it's on and I'm there, am I gonna continue watching? I think this is a little stronger in the second half. Like this is the I don't know that I'm gonna go out of my way to put a Cat and Hot Tin Roof on, but this movie once it's on and once you're in is is actually pretty rewatchable. I mean it's it's witty dialogue. It's interesting characters. There's a lot of reactionary scenes where the first time you're just kind of taking in the dialogue and then the second time you watch it, you're kind of looking, for, looking at how Paul Newman reacts to something, uh, how Elizabeth Taylor reacts to something and seeing the, the, the facial expressions on each character. So ultimately, I landed on a, a, a seven here with this one for rewatchability. I was originally
0: going to go with a four, but I think with the way we've discussed the film, I think that's probably a bit low. There are some interesting points of this that at some point I would like to revisit and maybe look at again. Four is kind of in the range for me where like I'm not actively trying to seek it out, and I probably would never go out of my way to see it, but it's uh, something that I wouldn't object to necessarily if somebody had it on. But I think that's maybe a little bit too low. There are some curious portions to this. And again, if you're going to rewatch it, it's primarily for the three leading characters or the three leading acting jobs in this film. So I'll go with a 5.5. I went with a 7, and,
2: and I'm going to go with that in large part because not only the three leads are very accomplished and worth watching, the dialogue I mean, just the fact that the screenplay picked up on some of the key dialogue from Tennessee Williams. And, you know, some of them are just brilliantly written and so poignant. Yet today, periodically, people will ask because they know I do this, they'll, you know, like ask for recommendations and I keep a list. This is one that I'm going to suggest or put on the list and go, it's worth watching because. It's three very good stars that are well-known. It's a Tennessee Williams play with some great dialogue that's quotable. So to that extent, that's where I usually rank. You know, if it's on and I'm flipping around, I might sit and watch it for a while just because I'm in part mesmerized by great acting and great dialogue. So that's a
0: 6.5 average between the three of us. For our audience score, we had a 72% for Google users and a 92% for Rotten Tomato users. That's a pretty wide gap. Not the largest we've ever seen, but it's still pretty wide for an 8.2 score in that category. So to recap the categories, we had a 5.33 for Legacy. We had a 7.83 for Impact Significance. We had a 7.67 for Novelty, a 6 for Classicness, 6.5 for Rewatchability, and an 8.2 for audience score, giving us a final total of 41.53, and currently placing it on our list between Slapshot and The Artist. All right, a Best okay. Picture winner there. Another Paul Newman movie. And a Paul Newman movie, yeah. Yeah, oh, a yeah. little bit of uh, like for like. So, All right, remaining questions. The last scene of the movie is quite obvious what's going to happen for the next five to ten minutes. My question is... is, I'm sorry that's that's all that you're talking about, but... Okay. I'm talking the average, not my average.
2: Well, I know. I guess you could
0: talk about what you're striving towards. Let's just say no one has ever complained about my average length of time. Dead tit men tell no tales. (laughs) Okay. But, essentially... Is Brick just going to help up to the point where he impregnates Maggie or is he going to go further than that and reconcile?
2: Of course he's going to reconcile. You talked about the point where he's in the bathroom and he's got her, her nightgown in his face and he's, yeah, he loves her and he's infatuated with her and her being, but he's also angry and he can't overcome his... I mean, he's got extremely conflicted feelings. Now those feelings have partly resolved, and now this is going to
1: break the logjam. Assuming he feels the same way when he sobers up, <laughs> which leads me to my next question. What is this dude's hangover going to look like in the morning? <laughs> I mean, he has been he <laughs> has been drinking bottles of whiskey all day and fighting with his family. I mean, he is... He's going to have a lot to think about in the morning, so that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to say he doesn't have a hangover in the
0: morning because he's still liquored up. going to keep keep the hair of the dog. Uh, that, that he's just still drunk by that point because of the amount that's in him.
2: The audience knows at one point in time I was a criminal defense attorney, and I remember having a case where my client pointed to me by the public defender. Blood alcohol was 52 You mean 0.52. 0.52. And uh, I'm like, there's no way. There's no way. So I called the state crime lab and I said, this has got to be a mistake. There's no way this guy could be driving a car at 0.52. He goes, well, is this guy, what what fence is this? I said, it's 7th. He goes, oh, there are winos in New York that they've tested that are 0.3. And they act sober because they have so much alcohol in them that if they don't have that level of alcoholism in them, they they have a seizure and they can't function. So if he's been drinking that long and that much, you know, probably he's not going to necessarily have a hangover because he's going to be having to maintain a level of alcohol in his system to function.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if they have this kid, this kid's going to, be growing up with some some issues here i think this this is not the easiest family to be a part of and there's daddy issues born right into the whole deal unless hey listen brick may go off and meet a, a nice guy and maybe he's got two dads and they're they're really good fathers together you know maybe so maybe that that balances it out i don't know
0: okay okay Do Gooper and May get cut in on the inheritance? Because it seems like everybody's just annoyed with them. And for good reason. May is one of the most shrill characters I think I've seen in a mainstream movie. My favorite
2: part of watching this movie is your mother watched it with me. And she turned and said, I'm sorry, but that actress is homely. (laughs) And for my wife to make a comment like that takes a lot. I guess it was in part not the most attractive and then the character she was playing. Oh my God. Ugh. Ugh. I mean, if I'm Gooper, I would, I, I would have to question why I married her.
1: Yeah. I think they get something right. I don't think he com- he completely puts the whole thing over uh, onto Brick's lap. I think they get a little something there. You know, I don't think they get completely cut out of the inheritance.
0: Well, given that, Brick doesn't seem to care that much about getting all of it or any of it. To be honest, I could see them taking a significant portion.
2: Moreover, if he's really a corporate lawyer, he's waiting until that point in order to get control of things. What a piss poor lawyer!
0: (laughs) Just because you go through law school does not mean you're a good lawyer.
2: Well, I know that because
0: that's how they make you a judge,
2: Kruger. Uh, Dunning-Kruger syndrome. Dunning-Kruger concept. Only 10% of anybody in a profession really understands what they're doing. And that's accurate. I can tell you just from the lawyers, I know that there's only about 10% who understand what they're doing.
0: Yeah, but 100% of them think they know what they're doing.
2: No, 90% of them do. 10% of them, by the same token, are questioning and going, I think that's right. The fact is that they're questioning it means that they're
0: the 10% who really know what they're doing. I I don't know if I really want a doctor questioning though. How do I do this brain surgery? No, what you do is, is if your doctor goes, I think this is what's going on. I want to talk to
2: some other people and I want to come back. If your doctor comes, goes, Nope, this is it. I'm positive. Here's your prescription. Run like hell.
1: (laughs)
0: all right i'm out of uh remaining questions either of you have anything left i'm i'm good
2: i'm i'm good too
0: so how was your first time on the podcast karen
1: i had a blast this is uh this is great it was uh, a bit of a challenge talking to movie that i wasn't super familiar with but i i like that challenge i like uh it sometimes it's it's it actually is a little better to go in without baggage you know and kind of get a clear head on a a movie that's been around for a while too. So I I had a lot of fun talking movies with you guys.
0: Yeah. And I would say that you definitely made me consider my own opinion on several of these categories. I think the way that you applied rewatchability is somewhat novel and I may steal that from you. Take it, man. It's public domain, but certainly welcome back anytime. Uh, We have plenty of things coming up yet. You uh, want me to send you the schedule? I certainly will, but anything before you go that you want to plug or,
1: uh, where can people find you on social media? Sure. So it's, it's at best picture cast, just how it sounds. You can search any of your podcast platforms for best picture casts. We're also on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We are on letterboxd, Facebook, all that best picture cast. We do fun little tournaments when we want to get out of the world of, of best pictures. We want to cover some other movie. We'll do a little social media tournament on Twitter where you can vote for your uh, favorite there. We do like a World Cup-style thing. We just got done with action movies. We uh, Terminator 2 took, it, took home the crown over Die Hard. Uh, so we'll have an episode coming out on that. And we have a bunch of fun Best Picture winners coming up. One of my uh, favorite directors, Clint Eastwood, Unforgiven, we just recorded. Can't wait for that one. Uh, Parasite's coming out. Going to be great. And at the end of every season, which is 15 movies, we rank the 15 movies that we talked about. And we build an ultimate ranking at the end. So Best Picture Cast is where it is. Check it out and hit us up. We love to hear from everybody. Yeah, I have to go back through.
0: And uh, now that we have a newest Best Picture, re-rank all of my 95 or 96 that I had down. I I finally finished every one going back to 1927. It's going to be a little bit of a project, but still fun.
2: I'm in the process of getting it. Four more and you get a hat.
0: (laughs) It's our five-member club. Okay, you cannot mention this to any upcoming guests anymore until you actually have made the fucking hats.
2: Oh, I will have the hats here shortly. I have to you, you've said that now it. for
0: a month and a half.
2: Oh, well, okay. I actually have time now.
0: The hats are going to
1: become mythical here at, at a certain point. <laughs> I'm okay with a mythical uh, proverbial hat too. So anytime you guys want me on, I love uh I love to talk movies and this was a this was a blast, this this uh dynamic here. So it's all uh, I'm all for it. Anytime you guys need a guest, you just hit me up.
0: Well, I'll send you the upcoming schedule and you can take a look at uh, anything that's uncleaned for at the moment. But I think Adam's got two coming up over the summer, Wolf of Wall Street and the Dark Knight. Oh boy. Yeah, that's that's gonna be an exciting one because that's gonna be one of our rare four person podcast. I promised myself I wouldn't do it anymore cuz the editing just gets so difficult with the amount of tracks on there, but all right, I'm I'm going to blow that one out. We've been saving that one for a while. It's
1: four seasons in, we might as well do that. You got to challenge him too. Give him like uh give him like an old John Ford or something, you know, really make him cut his uh, his teeth a little bit. I was listening in the in the Citizen Kane episode. I was listening to see if there was going to be any How Green Is My Valley bashing, but you guys were actually kind of
0: I love how green is my valley.
1: <laughs> I'm a huge, uh, huge how green guy. I'm, I think they got it right that year, personally. But just remember, that's just me.
2: if the horizon's on the top, it's interesting. The horizon's <laughs> on the bottom, it's interesting. If it's in the middle, it's shit.
0: <laughs> Amazing. All right, final thoughts for the week, Pop.
2: Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, you having to do Batman and Robin. I'm. I'm gonna hold you a little uh, tighter to it than last year. So this is now my second win. Uh, last year it took you what? Nine months to get around to doing uh, Glen or Glenda. Okay,
0: let's let's just pump the brakes here. I'll speak in my own defense. Yes, you have a busier work schedule, but a, I have a busier social life, and B, You come in here every week, you watch the movie and maybe put together a half an hour worth of notes. You sit down and you record and then you're done for the week. I watch the movie, put together an hour's worth of notes, do the website, produce the show, edit it, then get prepared for next week's movie. It's about a eight to ten hour process per week. So if you want to just cut me a little bit of slack, I got it done within the timeline that was set aside and you enjoyed the episode. So don't don't get on me about stuff here unless you want to start taking over some of the editing. Then I'll be glad to record Batman and Robin whenever you want.
2: That's the, that's the secret of getting to this point in my life, which is I've done the stuff and I've done the work and whatever. I'm now at a point where... Anything I don't want to do, I make somebody
0: else do for me. And try and take the credit, apparently. Of course. That's how it works. Well, all right. So (laughs) I'm just going to transition. Since we were talking about Adam, one of the worst opinions he's ever had, and this was in your Oscars preview podcast on his show, is that Quentin Tarantino is overrated. What the (laughs) fuck is he thinking?
1: Yeah. I, I think that's, that's gotta be a generational thing or so, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, he's one of my favorites. Uh, I, I actually just got done rewatching his filmography. I have, I have two, I have hateful eight and once upon a time left, but those are the two I've probably seen the most. So I'm not like in a rush to rewatch hateful. Aid's a yearly watch for me. It's one of my favorites. Well,
0: there are a couple of his, I still haven't gotten to yet. And that I've wanted to, I just haven't had the time to get through them nearly as much as I did in the pandemic, but the big topic that I wanted to discuss, and I told dad that I would wait till Wednesday to get his genuine reaction. This time last week, we got the note that he has finished the script, allegedly, for his 10th and final movie, that the working title is The Movie Critic. And it's allegedly going to star a female-led person that's in the make, of, supposedly, of a Pauline Kale. Mm. Okay. I don't know about you, but I was beaming from ear to ear when I heard that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm in on it. Well, he just wrote that great book on uh, revisiting a lot of the movie criticism from, I think, the 70s. I know he's been thinking about this for a while. I just hope that he brings back all of his favorites. Harvey Keitel's got to be in there. Samuel L. Jackson's got to be in there. Maybe a Travolta, an Uma Thurman, throw in a Leo and Brad Pitt. Everybody's going to basically stop and say, "This is my last chance to work with the man." He's sixty-five, or no? Is he sixty-five? Uh, no, I think he's just about to turn sixty. Excuse me.
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think. Yeah,
0: is about awesome. my age.
1: But uh, he's going to go out with a bang. You're going to get some, some all the the usuals, and you'll get some new newbies too. Kind of like how Pacino was in his last one. Like you'll, you're going to see a bunch of people who haven't worked with him that'll get in there too. I think it's going to be star-studded.
0: Well, I think for as long as some of these cast lists have been before, there may not be a minor person in any extra role. Like, it may literally be everybody just stops their calendar to show up for two minutes on a scene.
1: Yeah. Oh, cameos all over, for sure.
0: So, I can't wait to hear some of the casting rumors on this thing, and it's going to supposedly be filming in the fall. We still don't know who the distributor is going to be because... Once upon a time happened at Sony post Me Too, and he does not have any exclusivity with them, but they're the thought to supposedly be in the front runner seat at the moment. So I think that will also make a big difference.
2: How about Josh Gad as Roger Ebert?
0: I could buy it. Who who
2: is Roger Ebert? Josh Gad. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I could see it. But then again, the only guy that, as far as the look and the rest of it, that I could see playing Gene Siskel is maybe J.K. Simmons. But he's too old. I know.
1: But he would. He would make a great Gene Siskel. Did he say what it's going to be set in? What time frame it's going to be set in?
0: So I think it's the early 70s. So there's a thought that it may be in a similar shared universe post Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So that you could bring back Rick... Flair, or not Rick Flair, uh, Rick Dalton, and uh, Cliff Booth. Oh, cool.
2: What if you were to do The Godfather? It's all interwoven with The Godfather. Uh,
0: uh, I don't know if I need that. There are a lot of great films from the 70s. Like uh, I still maintain it's the best decade of film ever made. Oh, I'm with you there, 100%. In fact, I was thinking about this earlier this week if we wanted to take a break from any of our regularly scheduled stuff and just kind of slow play things, not like we need to because there's thousands of movies we could do and we could be doing this show for 20 years. But if we wanted to, we did a top 10 list of the fifties, but we didn't come to any consensus. I think what we would do is, is we'd figure out and vote on the 10 best for each decade to create a 100 years of movies, top 10 for each one. And so you'd have hundred movies that are the essentials.
1: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I like that.
0: But we'd have to vote on what the best movie of each decade is out of those 10. I like it. Yeah. I think there are certain decades that it would be monumentally impossible. Then there are the 80s.
1: I still want to figure out what that film is. Oh, you'll have your chance. That's oddly one of our highest rated episodes. Like, why am I watching this? Yeah, it's a, that's a tough, tough hang, Chariot fire, let me tell you. The movie moves in reverse.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. It's not binary. You can be decent and gifted at the same time. Next week, we are discussing Steve Jobs from 2015, directed by Danny Boyle written by Aaron Sorkin, starring Michael Fassbender, Kate Winslet, Seth Rogen, and Jeff Daniels. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R E E L G O O D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so the more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com, sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at G4Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and
1: distributor is Captivate FM.